Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to this episode of EGIL, the podcast. My name is Sarah Nauwen. I'm an editor-in-chief of the European Journal of International Law. Law and order often go in one breath, not only in TV series. Also in international legal discourse, practices and assumptions. Many of the articles that the European Journal publishes are ultimately about how international law orders the world. But in a recent issue of EGIL, Dr. Michel Stax-Kelsall called for disordering international law. Michel, Senior Lecturer in International Law at SOAS, is with us today, as well as two readers of her article, Professor Andrea Bianchi, Professor of International Law at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, and Luis Islava, Professor of International Law at Kent Law School. Welcome, everybody. Michel, in a nutshell, what is your argument? Thank you, Sarah. And just to begin by saying, I'm really grateful to be here and to be in discussion about my uh, article today. It's a real uh, pleasure to be with Egil on this podcast. In a nutshell, my argument is really an appeal to international legal scholars and particularly crit critical international law scholars to think about letting go of the liberal international legal order. And really what I'm trying to come to in that is to think about how we as scholars have conceptualized of international law, particularly over the past 20 years, and to move us beyond uh, simply critiquing the international legal order and toward uh, thinking much more about how uh, we might frame an order that's beyond that. Um, and it really came out of my own reading of the scholarship and my own self-reflection on what I was doing as a scholar uh, in, in, in attempting to be an, a critical international law scholar and, and through my writing, um, thinking about what it was that I continued to return to in my vocabulary and really realizing that it was very difficult to move beyond a vocabulary that understood international law uh, as framed by the liberal international legal order and the confines that that would then place on my imagination. So on that basis, you call upon us international lawyers to engage in international legal disordering. What does that entail? Reorganizing our textbooks, reading different cases? How do we create some disorder in international law? Some people would say there's plenty of disorder at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things I should say up front is that um, disordering, in my understanding of the term, is not merely to create chaos or to embrace illiberalism, so to speak. Um, rather, it's to, to engage in a process, I would say, of reflexive discernment about what it is we're doing as international law scholars and how we conceptualize as international law in our contemporary moment. But as we're doing that, we're having to ask ourselves a, a series of questions about how we understand uh, order. So what 
what does time mean for international law scholarship and what is the temporal order and the arrangement of time in that respect? A liberal international legal order tends to see time as a progress narrative and is largely Eurocentric in its operation in that it relies very much on Eurocentric understandings of history and historicism and also uh, sees to some extent uh, each chapter in international law's history or histories as progress on that going beyond before it. Now, of course, this has already been critiqued by many scholars, so it's not to say that I'm you know, groundbreaking and new in my call for disordering uh, in that sense. But I think where my argument takes us a step further or calls for an additional departure is to say, well, what happens when we start to see time and temporal locations in a different way or spatial locations in a different way? How do we connect that back to the practice of international law currently? And what does that do to our understanding of the frame that we're operating in? Can you answer those questions? Can you give us some concrete examples of what international legal disordering shows us? Absolutely. And again, by giving examples here, uh, as I as I claim in my article, I'm really opening up the space for more conversation. So these examples are by no means given as carte blanche authority on what disordering should look like or uh, the only way we could understand a disordering of international law in our contemporary moment. And I welcome critique, debate, discussion about alternative ways. But that being said, of course, we want some concrete examples. Um, I think as lawyers, it's it's always we're always drawn to that, or certainly I am drawn from the lim liminal space of theory back into the practice of law itself. Um, and I guess there are two here that I could draw from. Um, going forth with that understanding of time and temporal locations, I think um, one of the key examples more recently has been the notion of nuclear non-proliferation and nuclear disarmament. Um, and I draw in the article from the work of Justice Trindade, the late Justice Trindade, and his understanding of uh, a notion of the conscience of humanity. Um, but what I argue, unlike Justice Trindade, is that this could be known, this could be understood as conscientia in the Latin derivative of the term to mean uh, forms of knowledge that are constituted together or co-constituted. Um, and for me, it's really understanding then how uh, those communities that are ultimately most affected by um, nuclear weaponry in, in my example, in, in the article, it's really um, uh, indigenous First Nations communities uh, in America um, and also in the Marshall Islands, um, how they experience um, that harm and what that, that would then mean uh, for our understanding of what progress constitutes in this context and whether in effect we should be looking for progression or, or, or um, a linear progression in that respect, or actually what has been and always remains there, which is different understandings and conceptualizations of time, uh, different notions of the way in which we interact and engage with our natural environment um, as humans. Thanks. So now we've zoomed into the article a bit. Let me try to zoom out um, for a moment. 
Uh, Andrea, you have, I mean, you're known for many works, but one of them is a classic book on international legal theories in which you show international lawyers that there is no approach from nowhere. International lawyers always approach international law with background theoretical assumptions. And this article then debates the interaction between liberalism and critical theory. How would you fit this article in the existing legal theories? Or is that actually too categorical a question? Am I trying to box everything into categories again? And is this article a category of its own? Well, I'm not very eager to categorize uh, Michelle's article. Um, whenever you try to tag people, it's usually to squeeze them into boxes and to say, okay, now I understand what the exercise is about, um, which is a natural killer of creative scholarship. And I think Michelle's article is definitely an act of creative scholarship. What could I do in a more amateur way? It's like somebody who tastes a new dish and tries to make out what kind of ingredients have made it in, into it. Certainly, this is a work inspired by critical theory um, in its many variants. Uh, you've got Ratna Kapoor's uh, intellectual contribution. Um, uh, you've got Twail. Uh, you've got legal pluralism, comparative international law. Um, you know, different insights drawn by different approaches to international law. Um, but I think it would be uh, wrong to categorize the article and to fit it into one particular uh, category, because that's what uh, Michelle's article invites us to do. Um, I take this to mean, let's think afresh about international law. Let's do away with this myths uh, of unity, of coherence, of consistency, um, the categories we reason with, and that they are so dear not just to international legal scholarship, but also to Western culture more generally. In many ways, the disorder that she invokes makes me think of past epochs the Middle Ages and other times in which, you know, different legal orders and different layers of authority coexisted. And uh, it was perhaps a disorderly medley, but things worked out and the law had its place. So we have grown a little bit diffident towards that type of legal organization of transnational social life. But um, I don't think that disorder should scare us to death. Now, uh, this kind of disorder is this uh, an inevitable state of affairs that will be prompted at some point by the development of social practice. Well, for the time being, I think Michelle takes it more to be an intellectual project. Let's prepare ourselves and, um, you know, let's try to um, create this disorder so that we will have the tools in order to face a reality which has become more and more complex. Now, who should do that? Clearly, the answer is scholars to begin with, even though I suppose at some point it is necessary that social agents will, will have uh, to follow suit. I think it's very important what she does, because if, when you start talking differently um, and you try to familiarize your colleagues, your peers, and other interlocutors with a different kind of talking, perhaps this may pave the way for thinking differently over time. So um, that would be, I think, uh, the goal in the, in the midterm, to start trying, talking and thinking differently to face a reality which is constantly changing. 
Thank you, Andrea. It's uh, nice that you spoke of thinking about an article in terms of its ingredients. And I think you're absolutely right that Michelle's articles read, reads like an Ottolenghi recipe. There are lots of ingredients you need to have in the cupboard uh, and that she brings together with a very, very unique flavor as a result. Michelle, would you agree with uh, Andrea's reading of your work? Or do you say, well, actually, I tried to belong in the category or I tried to create my own? What? Yes, um, I love the reference to Otto Lenghi. Um, I, I'm not sure I would put him as the, as the chef of choice personally. Uh, I tend to go more for um, a, a combination of Mira Soda and um, uh, uh, Nigel Slater, but let's talk about that at another point. Um, but in terms of what uh, Andrea was saying, uh, no, I think I think absolutely he's he's encapsulated uh, both the the intellectual uh, endeavor that I'm embarking on and the the um, the hopes that I have for it very, very well. Um, in terms of belonging and unbelonging and, and this whole notion of, of uh, as you say, the, the kind of panoply of, of uh, scholarship or authorship that's, that's invoked in the article, I think that's in part due to my own sense as a, as a scholar and in some respects a human being of always feeling a little bit that I belong and that I don't belong uh, my own history and trajectory as a, as a person has been uh, to be a migrant uh, multiple times over in, in many communities and to come from a mixed background. So I think in some ways this sense of belonging, not belonging is is very intrinsic in, in how I view the world. So, um, and as I'm sure Andrea, Andrea would agree, there's no view from nowhere. So um, it, it, it definitely comes through in my thinking. Um, and I appreciate very much um, your engagement with with that process. And yeah, definitely the cognitive leading to or new thinking leading to possibly new approaches, I think is very much what I would say the disordering is about, because for me, it's described as a sensibility for that very reason. It's, it's about um, thinking about law differently, thinking about how we think about law differently. Yeah, let's stop for a moment at that sensibility. So in your article, you speak of a disordering sensibility. It's a sensibility that all of us could develop. Um, Louise, that reminds me of your work, because you have written about third world approaches to international law as a sensibility. So a twill is not anybody's possession, but it's a sensibility that all of us can um, yeah, become more better trained in or from more familiar with. Um, do you think that these two sensibilities, the sensibility of disordering and the sensibility that Twill has, do they go naturally hand in hand or do you see departures between them? I think they go hand in hand and they um, it speaks to each other's most deeply felt concerns about the world. Um, one reason for that, I think, is genealogical. As Michelle just put it, uh, her own sense of herself um, is informed by being migrant many times over, uh, being uh, positioned in the global south and the global north uh, intermittently for many years. And I think that's the what marks the, the 
life experience of many 12 scholars. And in that way, assuming that um, one can engage the world through neat categories and, and pre-established assumptions is, is, seems to be incompatible. But it's also a sensibility that, that is shared because of the way in which uh, international law have come to create a world that it is aspired to be an ordered world, but as it has gone on, it has created more disorder. And then um, 12 scholars respond to that very kind of uh, very forcefully uh, by engaging with the history of international law and what it does on a, on a daily basis across the planet. Um, one moment in which it is very clear how uh, Michel Stake and 12 sensibility uh, meet each other is in uh, when Michel uses the work of um, the fantastic work of Amar Batias, who calls to pay attention not simply to the third world, but the fourth world, the world of indigenous nations. And uh, what Amar Batia does and, and Michel does in her work is to remind us that we really are trying to figure out uh, what international law does today and what it should do tomorrow. We need to pay attention to the plurality of forms of being and knowing that exists in this planet. And for a long time, the only one that has prime as the, as the centerpiece of the international legal order is the European way of being and um, calling for what is not being taken into account uh, it is it is a political project, but it starts from a, a sensibility of uh, a, a new directionality of our thinking. Um, one thing that it is um, just to, to to close my my point about sensibility here. Um, one one thing that uh, Michelle does in her article fantastically well is to leave the what is coming open. And uh, so you know, a, a strong normativity goes in so far as inviting us to, to adopt a new lenses to approach the world, but that doesn't go as far as prescribing what's coming next. And I think 12 and 12 scholars are also very careful in terms of leaving open what's coming next because it is always felt and, and pretty much across the board in 12 scholarship than that decision needs to belong to the communities that have been left out or not necessarily um, receiving the benefits promised by international law. Louise, so your work also appears in Michelle's article um, and she uses some of your work, and I think it's the, the work with Sundia Pahuja, um, where uh, she says, you know, fantastic critical work, but at the same time, it does not fully depart from liberal international the, or from the liberal international legal order. One, one, of, one of Michelle's key points, I think, in the article is that even the crits, even those who, those who criticize the international legal order most or who critique the international legal order most often rely on the premises of that same order. And when you read that, do you agree with that Point and do you feel inspired now to go further in your work and disorder more? I, I definitely feel inspired to to go further. Um, what I will say in terms of of that piece with uh, Sandia and my other work um, 
engaging critically with international law is that uh, one of our concerns and ongoing concerns, and here I'm going to speak on behalf of Sandia, is to, is to wrestle with the institutions of international law. And part of that is, it, it is, is because it's a response to what Anthony Angi will, will say that, um, as, I will he, as, as he will put it, that if you don't do international law, international law will do you. And so in order to, responding to that, I think there is a presentism, uh, a pragmatism that accompanies the kind of the kind of critical work that I do. So I, I deeply feel like Michelle that we need to move beyond. While at the same time, I have a pressing need to deal with what is in front of me. Uh, so the article on the state does precisely that. You know, it, it, it tries to respond to the fact that um, today we live in a world in which the national state, as a used political form, has come to dominate our existence in this planet. And if we want to think beyond international law, we need to wrestle with the state. Um, that not, I wouldn't say that that necessarily put me within a body of liberal international law, but definitely has some uh, epistemological consequences. So if you, the parting point of critique is the state, you definitely will carry that figure with you. So Michelle, one of your ambitions was to inspire critical legal scholars, um, how, you know, how we can go further and you've achieved your um, aim in the sense that Luis is going to go further. But the, the nice thing in your article, it seems not limited to critical, you know, crits calling upon crits to go further. You actually seem to go beyond it and also call upon the more doctrinal international lawyers. At least that's how I read some of your interventions. So you call for applying the idea of non-dualism in international law. And of course, law is a field of categories, as I already said in the beginning. It's also often a field of binaries, you know, international, domestic right, wrong, even though we all know about the indeterminacy of law. But I just wondered, how would you um, advise the practitioners, for instance, counsel and judges, to implement that idea of non-dualism in international law? Can you give us an example? And I was wondering, for instance, the many advisory opinions that are currently pending, um, or requests for advisory opinions that are currently pending, as was discussed in the previous episode of EGIL, the podcast. When judges start answering those questions, what would non-binary answers look like or how would they go about answering this in a non-dualist way? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I I was thinking a lot about that uh, after listening to the EGIL podcast on advisory opinions and particularly the focus that scholars and, and practitioners in that podcast were taking on the importance of specificity uh, and precision, both in asking the questions and answering them for advisory opinions. Um, and I can see how uh, much of the discussion now is, is, is centered on ensuring that the question being asked is something that the court will have very, very little wiggle room in terms of what it's able to answer um, but also acknowledging that there is a deep 
consensus emerging um, with respect to the importance and the significance of climate change and the extent to which that's now really understood by so many different political communities and the intersovereign as being a fundamental significant um, of significant importance in the 21st century. So I guess my response to, to that, that pull or that desire for specificity and consensus would be to appeal to judges and lawyers to also think about, to think broader um, about different kinds of knowledge and forms of knowledge that might yet inform our decision making in this realm. And also what's not agreed. So while, while we want to maintain consensus on the bench, it might, it's, it's, a, it's an important point of discerning for ourselves, okay, which political communities or which communities assume that this is the response we should be taking to climate change? And what about those most affected by what's occurring and particularly those communities in, in small islands in Vanuatu, but also other First Nations communities across the globe um, or, or Aboriginal or Indigenous communities, how, however, those communities themselves see themselves. How do they understand what's going on in terms of the climate and climate change? And for me, um, even though it is important, uh, and I, I can imagine for the, for the, for the lawyers um, engaged in this process, listening to me, they might say, well, that's all well and good theoretically, Michelle, but it's hard enough as it is to get, you know, the the comments and 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 uh, determinations from uh, the members of the General Assembly, let alone start thinking of all these other communities. Um, to me, what was significant, at least in the case of the ICJ, was that it came from a grassroots effort, right? And it originally started as a question being posed um, by by uh, activists and academics. Um, uh, in the scholarly, scholarly community in the University of the South Pacific. So I think that that does bring an opportunity to incorporate into the process much more of this disordered thinking. Um, and certainly in terms of the amicus briefs that the court may wish to consider or the ways in which we can engage uh, non-dualist understandings of time and space in that process, I think there is an opportunity at least for that to be presented to the court and hopefully for the judges uh, to then think for themselves, you know, ultimately who and who and what is at most risk now and how do we ensure that we both appeal, as, as Louise has mentioned, to, to the presentist nature of the problem and the concern, which is only going to get worse based on the science uh, in, in the immediate future. But bearing in mind those communities that have been and always were there prior to international law and what they have to say about what's going on. So, Andrea, you've written not only about the theory of international law, but you've also engaged a lot with the practice of international law, at least also in your writings. What do you think of this idea? How will the bench and practicing lawyers react? Do you, do you think they're up for the challenge that Michelle puts to them? Well, I hope so. Uh, but I think that the most difficult part here is what what I would call the unlearning process, meaning the defamiliarization with the categories which we reason with. So 
if it's difficult to learn, to unlearn um, is even more difficult. And that's, that's the real challenge, to set aside or to suspend the presuppositions we use, uh, the things that we take for granted, particularly for practitioners, for people who um, uh, less frequently than us reflect about how they are doing things. This might constitute a major challenge. And to think in a non-dualist way, uh, let's face it, we are imbued with binaries. We almost drown in them. I mean, <laughs> public, private, uh, national, international, legal, illegal, the linearity of time, Michelle, I think, mentioned that earlier, the narrative of progress. It's not easy to take distance from this, to unlearn, to suspend the judgment and to say, okay, there might be alternative visions of dealing with time. Uh, it might not just be all about you know, development towards uh, a future progress, but to override this kind of knee-jerk reflexes, to cast doubts uh, on things the way we've been trained to know them, um, you know, comes also with social consequences. Most of the time you're looked down upon or you can be ostracized, you feel estranged from the profession. And then there is also this very well-known rhetorical device that is almost invariably used when something innovative is proposed. Are you really talking about disordering international law? Are you not afraid that the chaos and anarchy in which in the international legal system will immediately uh, be put into? No, uh, we don't know. <laughs> it's just a change that in any event at some point will be prompted by social developments. But to be inhibited by this uh, horror vacui, by this fear of something that might be different from the order that we have constructed ourselves all around us, um, that's not easy because unlearning requires a lot of courage, a lot of determination, a lot of passions. Uh, but that's the mission of the critical scholar, isn't it? And I believe that Michelle's article is um, a very important step in that direction. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you so much, Luis, for joining this podcast. You have given us a new challenge. You know, how can we organize a curriculum around unlearning, perhaps to be introduced at universities? Uh, but Michelle's article should definitely be on top of those reading lists. Uh, thank you, listener, for joining us. And for more EGIL podcasts, visit egiltalk.org and egil.org for more EGIL articles, including Michelle's.